0: Hey, folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you will get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe
1: Fold. And you can find us at the campaign workshop on Instagram and on threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of season four of How to Win a Campaign.
0: And as usual, if you haven't already, go ahead and check out our other episodes for this season on movement building. We have some really fantastic content you should take a listen to.
1: We have a great episode for you today. We'll be discussing movement building through accountability and how to make an impact in the spaces you care about.
0: Definitely, and there are so many you could be thinking about. But Joe, I mean, per usual, right? Like, let's really start by defining for our listeners what we mean when we talk about accountability and how they can potentially think about using it as an effective catalyst for making that change.
1: So when it comes to movement building, right, You know, accountability is a strategic approach to create change that emphasizes the importance of holding, it could be elected officials, it could be companies, it could be organizations, institutions, and individuals accountable for their actions and decisions. These days, we see this play out on lots of issues, but it is really important and actually can be transformational for movements. With this approach, it's
0: defined by a couple of different elements, right? So movement building through accountability really requires collective action, right? And and earlier this season, we talked in depth about grassroots movements or or grassroots and how to engage grassroots folks. This really is sort of part of that, right? How do you utilize your grassroots organizing and collective action for accountability specifically? And that really means it relies on that collective effort of individuals or groups who share that common goal or value. And accountability also, really importantly, requires transparency, right? To get people on board with the work that you're doing, with the movement work, right, with the accountability work, you really want to make sure that the information about your activities, the decisions that are happening, finances are accessible to the members and to the public, right? If you are holding somebody accountable, you also want to be seen as somebody who is transparent and trustworthy so that they join that movement for accountability. And it it really ensures that the actions you are taking are in alignment, right, with the larger movement that you are part of. Joe, any other characteristics that you would include in this type of movement building?
1: The way I like to think about movement building is... It is public facing and a way for people to get involved. And the way I think about accountability is it could be small or big accountability could be an issue with a local library where you had elected officials who wanted to like ban specific books or ban books in a school community, right? And they don't want people reading these books, whereas you have a group of people who get together who decide they're going to hold these elected officials accountable and distribute these books. And then these folks are up for re-election. So maybe it's letting people know about their votes or their actions to hold them accountable. That's easy with elected officials. With corporations, it could be that a corporation took a pledge around deforestation and didn't follow through on that pledge. And so now people are holding that corporation accountable and say, hey, why aren't you doing that? It could come across as many different ways, or like we've done work around CNG pipelines where like there was a water board that was about to rule on the siting of a pipeline, and it was helping a community hold that water board accountable to say, hey, is there gonna be an impact study, an environmental or economic impact study to make sure or our community is safe as you're citing this pipeline. So that accountability could come across many different ways.
0: It can look like legal action protests, right? Like public awareness campaigns, organizations have done scorecards. So thinking of ways in which you can step in to say, hey, person in decision-making power, you said you were going to do this thing and you didn't. Or on the flip side, right, like you said, you were going to do this thing and you did. And how do you make sure that you're touting and applauding those folks who actually did the work too, right? So I'm thinking of... In the LGBTQ space, when we were running a lot of marriage equality bills, there was a lot of accountability to put pressure on folks who are champions or who at least said they were champions to vote with the community when those votes came up. But on the flip side, there was a lot of pressure to get Republicans to also vote alongside us in those marriage equality fights. And some of them did. And so a number of groups and organizations also did a thank you campaign, right, which is another form of accountability. It's really for getting those folks to be with you in the future, right? When you need them again, right? It's that follow-up piece that really helps you think not only of the short-term goals, but of the long-term goals as well, because you want to make sure you're planning for the long haul where you don't want to just get them in and then beat them up again. You want to get them and thank them and then beat them up again (laughs) to get to you to vote with you in the future.
1: And the benefit there is that, you know, sometimes there is a belief that a Republican or frankly, a more conservative, non-partisan elected official is not going to take a stance on, issues like LGBTQ plus rights or an environmental stance. And so the expectation is they're going to vote against these communities around this. And when they do take a stance, they should be thanked for it. When they take a stance that is the right stance, we need to make sure that people know that. And so having groups then do the positive accountability to say, hey, this person took this important stance on this can really, one, show that that elected official is different than people would expect him to be. Or
0: Agreed. Joe, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, like, I would imagine the, the accountability campaigns or movement or impact that most folks have seen, right, like, had to do with public pressure and particularly utilizing the media, right, where... It was a corporation who pulled down like LGBT pride stuff, or it was Starbucks had a big one around the utilization of their bathrooms, right? And allowing people to utilize their restrooms who may or may not be purchasing stuff within (laughs) inside Starbucks, right? How can organizations either on the local level or the larger scale level think about using media and that way to put accountability or pressure on their targets?
1: Well, I think it's to let folks know what's going on and make sure that the issue is talked about in an accessible way. I think sometimes these issues can go way in the weeds. And I think it really is thinking about if you are going to, you know, use local media to provide pressure, making sure that that issue is very clear to people. Why should they care about it? What happened right now? Why does it matter to me? And making making the pitch be very clear to local media. And I think what you, what you've seen is the simpler and clearer those pitches are, the more likely it can get a hold of people. It can get people to sign a petition. It can get people to leave comments. It can get people to engage in an issue if it's clear. But if it's not something you can say clearly, quickly, crisply, it's probably not something that's going to get much traction or much coverage.
0: As you were thinking about Doing a direct action, doing a protest, right, like collecting petition signatures and delivering those, whatever the tactic you are thinking about utilizing is, I think to Joe's point is understanding what is the message you are trying to get across and how sort of succinctly and clearly and accessible language you're using, right? Can you give not only your audience, but the media so that as... Black Lives Matter protests are happening across the country, right? As Giffords, another organization who holds folks accountable, goes around the country to do public displays of the number of gun violence incidents that have happened in that community. It can happen in a number of different ways, but I think one, getting creative with it can be helpful, but two, just understanding, like, what is that clear message that you are trying to deliver? We will no longer stand for police brutality against black and brown lives, right? Protests are happening across the country. There are gun violence incidents happening daily in communities across this country, and we deserve better, right? Like, we cannot sort of stand while folks are dying in the streets. There has to be a very clear message that you were utilizing in those accountability campaigns that I think makes it easy for not only the general public, but also for the media that sort of take hold there.
1: And I think what's really important about this topic is that accountability is a tactic, but in the end, the goal is transformation. And Glenn Hurwitz, our guest, really talks about this. The goal is for to get people to change their actions and do something different. So what is that goal? And making sure you're pushing towards the end goal and saying, here's what needs to be done, not just that this was wrong or these people voted the right way, but now what are we trying to get to happen? And that transformation is a really important goal at the end of the accountability campaign. Let's dig in. I am super excited to have Glenn Hurwitz on the show, the founder, CEO of Mighty Earth. He led environmental campaigns and has done an amazing job of really talking to us about how accountability can work to provide this transformation. And it was an amazing interview.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited to hear how they do it on on like a global scale.
1: Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Kevin Hurwitz is the founder and CEO of Mighty Earth and has been a champion of environmental rights for years, leading campaigns around the world for forest protection, climate change, and sustainable agriculture. He's played a leading role in transforming several industries, including the reduction of deforestation for palm oil, establishment of new policies and practices for the entire rubber industry, and serious action in meat, steel, and elsewhere. Mighty Earth is a global advocacy organization that utilizes a perfect storm of campaigns, communication, and practical engagement with decision makers that holds industry and government accountable. Glenn Hurwitz, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
1: Yeah. So. First of all, give me a sense of how you got into the work that you do. I know I call it accountability work, but you all call it something a little different. I want to talk about that. But first of all, talk to me about the work you do and how you define the work.
2: Sure. Well, in answer to your first question, you know, I got into this because I've had a passion for protecting nature and fighting climate change since I was 10 years old. Global warming first hit the headlines then. I was like a little Greta Thunberg. I was very upset about what was happening to the world, and I tried to do as much as I could. I uh, collected cans in a garbage bag and dragged them around to recycle. I, I was a dorky environmentalist, but the passion was deep. And in college, I became a student journalist and was very avid about it, and I thought that if I wrote about environmental problems that were affecting our campus or our community, then they would be addressed. People would see it and wake up to it. And what I found was that even when my articles would get attention, nothing typically would happen in response. And so my senior year, I got involved in activism and with the, the Yale Student Environmental Coalition, And learned some of the basics of it. Um, Then I went overseas and I was on a kibbutz in Israel doing organic agriculture and enjoying myself and trying to have a direct impact on my ecosystem there, having a great time. Uh, But then George W. Bush got elected. So I decided I should come back to the United States and save the planet from him. And I called one of my friends with whom I had worked in college and said, I want to help, but I don't know how. And she recommended this program called Green Corps, which trains you in running and winning environmental campaigns, and gave me more responsibility than I ever thought I had, and the experience that that organizing the campaigning could drive victory, certainly on a much larger scale than I ever thought I would be doing right out of college. And so I was hooked, and I've been doing work to protect the environment, running campaigns, running organizations, uh, for the most part since then, with occasional forays into journalism and politics.
1: So, tell me just a little bit of background. How did Mighty Earth begin?
2: So, I, about 10 years ago, uh, had had a little bit of success running a campaign with these two then 15-year-old Girl Scouts who had contacted me because they were very concerned about the impact of deforestation for palm oil. They they discovered that palm oil uh, was in their Girl Scout cookies and they loved orangutans and palm oil was the leading threat to orangutans. And so they were campaigning to get the Girl Scout cookies to drop palm oil. And they had not had much success, so they contacted me because I had written op-eds about this topic, and they said, can you help us get other environmental groups to sign on? I said, sure, but you guys are literally the perfect poster children for this cause. Uh, you know, People all around the world care about what's happening to rainforests, rainforest, to Sumatran tigers, to orangutans, uh, but they don't know what to do about it. And here you have an iconic product that you can connect to this faraway challenge that people are deeply passionate about. And so we had great success in getting media attention around this issue uh, really for the first time, I think, at this scale. It was like they were uh, front page of the Wall Street Journal, all the major morning shows. They were very charismatic and eloquent themselves. And then the Indonesian and Malaysian environment uh, agriculture ministers attacked these girls for daring to criticize this product that was produced in their country. And so a number of different philanthropies saw that and said, Um, Wow, you know, we didn't think you could get a response out of these governments. They didn't seem to care about the United States because we only consume 2% of the world's palm oil. And from that, I developed a a strategy for these philanthropies and how do you end demand for products of deforestation that happens in the Amazon, in the Congo Basin, in Southeast Asia? You you know, it affects our climate, Um, it affects wildlife, it affects indigenous communities, things people care about, but they don't know how to influence it. And so from there, I developed a strategy um, to focus on the key middlemen, the agricultural traders. So I never thought at that point that we were going to be the ones to implement it. You know, we recommended that they give support to much larger organizations, and they did, and those organizations did a great job, but there wasn't somebody who was really um able to move forward in the nimble entrepreneurial way uh, that was needed as quickly as was needed. And so we ended up uh, setting up a campaign that ultimately became Mighty Earth to you know run in this case a global campaign against uh, the largest agribusiness giants in the world.
1: Talk to me how you see accountability as being part of a movement for social change and how you define it.
2: Yeah, well, you know, our purpose is not primarily to provide accountability, but rather to drive transformation. So, one of the big issues that we work on is breaking the link between agricultural expansion and deforestation. Uh, in in the palm oil industry, for instance, which we were just talking about, there's been thirty thousand square miles of deforestation. That's resulted because of corrupt land deals, uh, because of economic demand for food, because of a thoughtlessness about protecting natural resources. Um, None of that deforestation was necessary. There's 1.6 billion acres of previously deforested land where you could expand agriculture uh, without threatening native ecosystems. We wanted to create incentives around the big companies that were driving this to get them to stop that deforestation. Now, yes, did we provide accountability in public with their customers, with their investors? Absolutely, but I think for us, You know, that's not enough. Like, just punishing or rewarding people for doing right or wrong in the past is good. Uh, It helps create good incentives going forward, but we actually want to drive change on the ground. And so, you know, initially in the case of palm oil, uh, through these campaigns and through talking directly to the CEOs of the largest agribusiness companies in the world, we were able to persuade. Within a year, over 90% of the industry to ban deforestation, peatland clearance, and uh, exploitation of indigenous people throughout their supply chain. It was a huge victory. But we weren't happy with that because that was just commitments on paper. And so we needed to follow it up with setting up implementation systems. I had to convene the senior executives at the world's largest agribusinesses over and over again all over the world, which was largely a you know process of sitting there and listening to them whine at me for two days until I said, guys, you got to do something. You've got, you know, still got this problem. You've made these commitments. You're not, you're not fulfilling them. And slowly they would agree to it. And then we set up a, a satellite monitoring system, supply chain analysis system. So that every month we're monitoring 22 million hectares of forest across Asia, many more lands in in Latin America and filing alerts with the big companies. And the result of all of that is that in, you know, in that industry and, in, in rubber industry, where we've done this also, and the paper industry, where our allies have, have deployed a similar model, we've seen deforestation decline more than 90%. This is a gigaton-scale climate victory. There's thousands of orangutans and tree kangaroos and elephants that are alive today because of it. It's really something very exciting. But that was because of an industry transformation. You know, We did, in some cases, I think, cause share prices to plummet to you know the value of billions of dollars. We didn't really care that much about that. Even though some (laughs) companies suffering that, their CEOs were bad actors, ultimately we wanted to really turn them into more responsible actors. Getting that result, seeing the fire safe, seeing the um, reductions in climate pollution was where we have really taken pride. And now we're trying to deploy that on a larger scale. So we've had this great success in Southeast Asia and parts of Africa. And we're now tackling, for instance, the meat industry, which is the largest driver of deforestation in the world more than all the rest of agriculture combined it's also the biggest climate polluter in agriculture that causes more pollution than all the cars trucks ships and planes in the world combined which is kind of a mind-blowing statistic and it also has driven more displacement of indigenous communities than any other uh, commodity so it's a big industry those those areas where we've had success, they reach about 50, 60 billion dollar a year industries. The meat industry is a trillion dollar a year industry. And so we're trying to scale up the transformation effort in a commensurate fashion.
1: For someone who hasn't seen your work before, what does a transformation campaign or accountability campaign, as we may call it, look like? Because you talked about some of the sort of end goal of it. How does it start? What's a midpoint? What's an endpoint? What does that look like?
2: We call our model change the perfect storm, which stands in contrast to a silver bullet approach. So, you know, we don't think any one communication or meeting or solution is going to solve these big, hairy challenges that we're tackling. So, you know, if we see a problem, uh, we try to tackle it from all angles. So another issue that we are working on uh, is driving decarbonization of heavy industry, steel, aluminum, cement, chemicals. This is something most people have not heard of, but actually causes 25% of global climate pollution. So it's this big, untackled industry. And, you know, first thing we do is we research it. What are the levers that we can use to drive change? Maybe it's passing a law here in the United States, in Europe, in, in Asia, somewhere else. The challenge with that is. governments are subject to a lot of political pressure from the industries responsible for polluting the planet, and they're not always doing their job. It may be very challenging to get that kind of political change. What we have found is that, paradoxically, the companies who are most responsible for environmental destruction are often best positioned to address it. So how do you move a big company like ArcelorMittal, or uh, one of the other steel giants or aluminum companies, or aluminum companies based in China that nobody has ever heard. We typically go after their customers. We find out who their customers are. Um, We go after their investors, and we talk to the media. We mobilize grassroots. And this is often a very personally targeted effort. So right now, um, we are really focused on General Motors as a large auto company and one that has not done enough to make sure that the steel and aluminum and other materials that it's buying are um, free from connection to coal. they You know, GM is moving towards electric vehicles. That's really great. But within a few years, uh, 60% of their environmental footprint is going to be from the materials that go into the cars, not from the tailpipe emissions. Uh, and so we want to get out ahead of this and tackle it. And we have tried to Create this perfect storm around General Motors. So, um, we have worked with you uh, to do some really fabulous advertisement about GM's carbon footprint, uh, its connections to child, to, to forced labor in China. And that, you know, I think has got their attention when they see in newspapers around the country ads calling them a lemon because of their pollution. Uh, when they see billboards outside the Super Bowl stadium. And that's part of it. And then we're also doing, in this case, grassroots organizing across Michigan and other places where GM has a big presence. Uh, and, you know, so we're asking students to go up to GM recruiters uh, and say, we don't want to work with your company if you're driving outsized climate pollution because we really care about this. We want to work in a place that's going to have a positive impact on the world. You know, we're also working in the media we talk a lot to investors in these companies and ask them to raise the issues behind the scenes. That can be a very effective uh, complement as well. Sometimes they they uh, file shareholder resolutions where they actually ask stockholders to vote on it. And sometimes they win. They overcome the objections of management to say they have to do more on climate. So we try to do all of this and is concentrated a period of time. I've drawn a lot from not only social change theory and movements, but also from classical military sh- strategy. And concentration of forces... Key part of that, especially in a case like ours, where you know we're not the biggest environmental group in the world, and even the largest group, I think, doesn't compare in scale to a General Motors or the steel industry. Uh, so we need to be smart, we need to be targeted, and we need to have the moral force of thousands or millions of people behind us.
1: Yeah, and so then tell me what success looks like then, because you could get a promise where someone says, "Oh yeah, I'm going to do this," but that isn't always really held. So what does that success look like for you? And what have you been able to see in these transformational moments that you've been able to keep people to their word and their promise?
2: Yeah. Well, so I think it's kind of remarkable the extent to which um, we've been able and, and allies have been able to actually drive implementation. I would say... You know, probably more than 50 percent of our work is actually focused on driving implementation rather than getting those initial commitments, because it is the biggest risk. It's, it's the easiest thing in the world for a company like General Motors or a palm oil company or a big supermarket to respond to pressure by just saying, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll stop deforestation. We'll stop using coal. And then you come back five years later and the situation is still the same and they throw up their hands. We've seen many examples of that. It's a little bit of figuring out what needs to happen to make sure that implementation is happening. So uh, there's technical elements of that, like doing the satellite monitoring to make sure, sh- you know, sure that and, and, you know, sometimes following trucks on the ground um, to see where animal feed is going from from a farm uh, to a port across the ocean and to an ultimate customer uh, in a supermarket. Um, it's uh, looking at, you know, how are these steel and aluminum plants that are supplying General Motors actually performing are they buying clean energy are they switching to green hydrogen for instance and we work with partners to do that sometimes sometimes we do it ourselves we work with big academic institutions uh, partner ngos consulting companies on that and the world is awash in data so i don't know sometimes if we're like doing the most unique work on that sort of technical front but what we do add to it is political heft so we take that data and we file it with big companies. And they know that if they don't respond to us, they're going to be reading about it on the front page very quickly. They know they're going to be hearing about it from their investors very quickly, to whom they made these commitments as well. Like they're they're not just making a commitment to decarbonize to stop deforestation to us. They're making it to the people who own their company. Sometimes they're signing it as a, a specific on-paper deal with investors that has some legal force. You know, in cases where companies are Uh, committing fraud and pretending that they're addressing the environmental problems, but not doing it, it can create legal risk for them as well. So one of our biggest targets right now is JBS, which is the largest cattle company uh, in the world. It's the third largest meat company in the United States. It's caused more deforestation than any other company in Brazil. And they are saying that they're trying to address their climate footprint. And I think part of their approach has just been to pretend that it's already addressed, so they've been filing these reports with investors for several years where they're reporting that they have a, a very small climate footprint, like almost on par with an electric vehicle company, that they have zero deforestation. We know from our own work and you know literally dozens of stories in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, newspapers, TV stations around the world, that they're the number one company linked to deforestation in Brazil. So and here they're telling the SEC and, and investors... Something entirely different. So we actually filed an SEC complaint around this in January, saying that you know this is effectively fraud when you're saying that you're free of deforestation and giving a high mark to yourself, and then uh, getting investment on that basis it's, it's, you know billions of dollars. So that's you know another angle. And we look for whatever angle will work. I think we're we're flexible and open minded. We try to you know have cultivated a flexible, nimble, entrepreneurial organization. That's been I think key to our
1: success. You talked about successful campaigns, but what does a failed campaign look like and what have you learned from that too?
2: Today's failed campaign hopefully will be tomorrow's victory. So I mentioned all the success we've had in breaking the link between agriculture and deforestation in Southeast Asia and parts of Africa. Well, the meat industry we've been working on now for really 70 years and have not had that kind of breakthrough yet. Uh, Deforestation has continued and even increased under the Bolsonaro regime in Brazil. And it's been very, very frustrating because there's no reason for them to continue deforestation. There's no reason in the United States for them to continue pouring uh, fertilizer into the Mississippi River, Gulf of Mexico, Chesapeake Bay. Um, But they're still doing it. And here's some reasons why I think we haven't had that full, that real breakthrough yet. Number one, we didn't have the scale of financing that we had on the proportionally that that we had on some of these other campaigns. So for a few years, you know, we were trying to tackle the global meat industry and utterly transform the way it operated with a budget of about $300,000 a year. And we would do cool stuff. We would do investigations that we got, you know, huge New York Times story, big media in in different parts of Europe um, that was focused on the supermarkets and and big companies like Cargill and JBS. But we didn't have the people on the ground to really follow it up with the engagement with with doing the next round, with doing an advertising campaign, with doing the kind of grassroots organizing, so I I felt like we, we were always you know building up attention and then didn't have the chops to really f- fully follow through. You know, in the philanthropic world, we're you know relying on people's donations and, and institutional philanthropy. Unfortunately, for a while, there was not a belief or a temperament willing to embrace advocacy among the people working on uh, the meat industry. You know, over time, we were eventually able to raise a little bit more money uh, and have been able to build up presence in some of the key markets. So in Brazil itself, in the Netherlands, in UK, in Spain, in France. You know, now I think that's bearing some fruit. So in 2021, we got commitments from 13 large supermarket chains around the world, representing more than 60,000 individual stores through the kinds of campaigns that I was just telling you about. Say, we're not going to buy any Uh, meat or dairy that's connected to deforestation that happened after 2020. That's great. We were very happy about that. However, we've gone back and looked at, okay, all of their supply chains and found out all the instances where they're buying from JBS and Cargill and Bungie and the companies driving deforestation. We've put them to it, put it to them, and they have not acted um, to actually cut them off for the most part. Um, There's a couple of isolated instances. So now we're saying, well, you've made this commitment, you have to live up to it. And now they're having to actually pull the trigger and they're getting nervous about it. I hope we will see change. We worked with you on on an ad campaign that we're about to deploy in the UK on Tesco, which is their biggest supermarket chain. Uh, We had a great expose that was in the Times, of London and um, Sky News there. So, you know, they're starting to feel more and more pressure. Um, we've gotten Carrefour, which is a huge supermarket chain based in France, it's Brazil, also Brazil's largest supermarket chain, to uh, drop some of its beef supplies, but we still haven't had that big breakthrough. And I think our, our view is we've got to be persistent, we've got to try different angles, we've got to scale, you know, keep beating the drum for more funding um, so we can scale these campaigns. I think that will ultimately, like, if we can get to the scale that we need, we probably will. And finally, we've also um, done work with governments. So... We and a whole coalition um, helped pass, at least just in December, uh, a European law to ban imports of products related to deforestation. So there now will be in a couple of years legal penalties on companies importing into Europe, at least where they're connected to deforestation. That's a success, but we haven't we haven't had that final breakthrough yet. And so, we're, you know, our view is. Sometimes you win really quickly, as I think, relatively speaking, we did in the palm oil industry. And sometimes it takes persistence and growth, as I think we are experiencing in our efforts to transform the meat industry.
1: Yeah. And so talk a little bit, because you mentioned a little bit of this. I just want to dig a little deeper on the coalition piece, because when we talk about movement building, which is what this year's series is, it isn't one group. It's a lot of different groups and individuals moving together to make a change. So how does that piece come together for you?
2: Yeah. You know, I must say it varies a lot depending on what issue we're working on. I mean, first of all, we tend to tackle, as you may have heard, issues that are just simply not getting enough attention. So we're kind of lonely at times and we really want to build coalitions. Um, And a lot of our job is trying to persuade you know, organizations, philanthropies, governments, private sector to pay attention to an issue like industry decarbonization is just not getting very much attention. On other issues like some of the deforestation stuff we tackle, there are other groups that we work with closely around the world. Um, and for us, you know, it really spans the gamut. So we work with, you know, some of the large conservation organizations, Nature Conservancy, WWF, um, Conservation International, on the one hand they're not themselves typically running public campaigns or working with companies. Uh, And then on the other hand, you know, we, we work with Greenpeace, we work with Extinction Rebellion and, and groups that are, you know, I think share our activist spirit, but tactically that's, that's their primary focus. We will work with all of those to get the job done. Um, And I think, you know, for the most part have had success with that. What's been really interesting to me and surprising is on some of these issues, There's not necessarily that many groups that want to play the role that we're doing in terms of public advocacy campaigns. So, there's um, groups doing really good behind the scenes research, polling, um, sometimes providing like comm support or digital ideas. It's not universal, but there's a reluctance to actually be the ones out front critiquing a company, engaging with the CEOs. And and so, you know, even on industry decarbonization, there were some other large groups doing it. And I thought at first, like, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what our niche was going to be. And then it became clear that they wanted us to play this role. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, we, we look for other groups to kind of invite us in to say, yeah, we we would really benefit from your presence on an issue. Sierra Club, for instance, has done a long-term campaign that was supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies and others to uh, stop U.S. electricity sector from using coal. It was well-funded, brilliant people running it great campaign and has been largely successful. I mean, it's not it's not done yet, but they have shut down hundreds of coal plants in the United States. That's not somewhere where like mighty earth was needed because they already had great people working on it at scale. Demand for agricultural products that were driving massive deforestation, kind of an obscure issue, but really important. Uh, and so we saw this huge need and I think decarbonization is a similar story. We're looking now at launching a big campaign to drive rewilding of the American West and other, other parts of north america and so we've gone out and we've talked to groups both big national groups and also groups on the ground to see like you know we know this is an issue we also know we don't know everything about it are there things in our you know quiver of tools that would be helpful to the overall movement and i would say to my shock but like a little bit surprised so we're like yes we would really love you we need the help and so we're now figuring out how we might be able to to dive in
1: and again, from what I've seen, right, it's not only your coordination with groups, but also finding individuals that have a story to tell and amplifying that story to, you know, folks on the ground. And I've seen that be very powerful in the work you've done.
2: Yeah, thank you. I think that's actually a great point. As NGOs, we sometimes focus on formal organizations and institutions, and people tend to remember people. People. More than institutions and organizations, and so like the brand name of an organization often, you know, slides away, but the the story of somebody's personal life engagement on an issue is what sticks. And I think you know, when it comes to communications, and you've done a great job of this, is when you focus on those very specific stories, those faces that, that like something really powerful and specific, it often carries the day over an abstract argument or an institutional case.
1: Yeah, I mean, and again, it's, it's nice, you know, to work with folks that care about telling the story. Right. And that always isn't the case. Yeah. And it always isn't the case of capturing those stories. And that is a real commitment you all make. And it, it frankly, you know, as someone who's a, you know, advertiser marketer, it makes my life a lot easier that those <laughs> stories are in the center of the work that you do. Do you have a favorite of all the campaigns? I mean, people ask me this all the time if I have a favorite um, campaign. But do you have one that you felt like was a favorite of the work that you've done?
2: Well, in Mighty Earth, we say we are obsessed with impact that results focus, I think, is the single thing that unites our team, our volunteers. Uh, and so to me, my favorite campaign would be the one that drove the most impact. Thus far, it's probably the transformation of the palm oil industry. We took on this daunting issue where they're destroying a million acres of forest a year. And there really wasn't that much happening on it at the time. And I think we, we played a, a leading role in, in totally changing that dynamic. And so, you know, now it's about 30,000 acres a year, you know, it's more than 95% deforestation decline. We've been able to spread that model to rubber, um, to the steel industry, to parts of Africa. Um, so I'm really proud of that and um, the concrete impact. And so, you know, it, it was also exciting because we had, you know, really cool campaigns on the ground doing grassroots organizing, great media. Um, I wish we had been working with you so we could have done some, some great advertising as well. But that all came together we're still going to be impact obsessed and focused on the individual campaigns that we're working on, because that's actually how you drive change. Like I will say as mighty earth, you know, has, has grown, it does seem like demonstrating the power of this model is itself valuable. I think that in addition to the big challenges and campaigns that we're taking on, um, I have seen other organizations, you know, look to that and see the success and try to replicate it in their own realms. And so I, I feel proud about that as well, that we're, you know, I'm ultimately, like, I consider myself an organizer, above all. That's my profession. And, you know, I'm not always doing that because sometimes I'm looking at a spreadsheet doing budgets or, um, you know, uh, schmoozing with uh, tycoons. But ultimately, I know that I'm there and in that position because we have the power of um, many people that we've worked to to organize uh, all around the world behind us. It's not because of my charm and good looks.
1: (laughs) So... So what do you think the future of the environmental movement is as far as movement building? How do you see this like playing out? Is it incrementally through these campaigns? Does there become sort of a tipping point where people and companies change on their own? What do you see, especially in your work? What does the future look like?
2: There's two ways to answer that. One, in the specific cases, on these industries that are causing these big problems, I do think what you can see emerging is a virtuous circle. So where you get the private sector to act voluntarily, that suddenly means that you have companies that were once lobbying or bribing governments to weaken environmental protection, gut human rights protections. They have an incentive to make sure that their competitors are subject to the same requirements that they've committed to voluntarily. And that means that they, are, they may support or at least not oppose legislation like the one you know we, we just helped pass in Europe to, to ban imports related to deforestation. It was extraordinary to me. We one of the things we did was get the chocolate industry and the cocoa industry to support um, this legislation, even though they are going to be the very ones regulated by it and face penalties if they import cocoa. You know, they have not done enough to tackle deforestation in their industry. So I think they're sort of desperate looking for somebody else to do it. That would not have been possible if they weren't facing pressure from you know, us and our allies. And you can go back to some of the early victories in the modern environmental movement that show how long this has been in place. So CFCs uh, coming from aerosol cans were destroying the ozone layer in the 1970s. And DuPont, which was far and away the main manufacturer of these things, said, well, if it's proven that these chemicals destroy the ozone layer, we will stop producing them. Well, then very quickly, the proof came out and they had to live up to that. And so then they wanted to make sure that you know they weren't undercut by Chinese, Indian, or other competitors. So they went to President Reagan and said, you know, we know maybe you're not the world's biggest champion of environmental protection, but we need this for American competitiveness to ban them outright. And so that um, he then supported the Montreal Protocol, which banned CFCs and other uh, ozone destroying chemicals, and it's been one of the big climate successes. And it, it's partly because of this, largely because I think of this this virtuous circle that we're now trying to replicate on other issues
1: yeah do you have a favorite book or you know podcast or even movie that you've gotten inspiration from on the topic of transformational campaigns that you could recommend to our listeners who are trying to build movements
2: so I have a favorite book that it's been very helpful to us as an organization I don't know if there's one particular book about the kind of work that we do that's coming to mind I feel like I mean, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. I just, you know, named an example of a, a precursor. And there's a lot of campaigns I've seen that, you know, we've drawn from. But at the same time, I think we've, we've been somewhat innovative in bringing all of this together. You know, I sometimes feel like we're a little ahead of the curve. But one of the things at Mighty Earth, we're an advocacy organization. Uh, you know, we very much feel ourselves part of the environmental movement. But because we're so results-focused, we also try to bring in the best of the business world. We have always cultivated... Uh, nimbleness, entrepreneurial spirit. And I read a book a few years ago called No Rules Rules, uh, which is by the founder of Netflix um, and his co-author, Aaron Meyer. And it's about building a culture of freedom and responsibility. Um, And so it's a business book. I don't like most business books. They have, at Netflix, created this informed captain model where they try to lead through context, not control. And we found that very applicable. It, sort of, it was a codification of a lot of what we were already trying to do, but they brought it to another level with greater rigor. And so we've been trying to cultivate that and, and replicate that culture. So we try to hire, you know, it's centered on people, so we try to hire super talented people and, you know, we're willing to pay more to have fewer excellent people, for instance, on our staff on the theory that, you know, one great person will get more done than five adequate people. There's a lot of other parts of, of this methodology as well. Yeah. You know, we've really tried to drive that and cultivate it. I think we're, there's aspects that we're still working on. We had Erin Meyer come in uh, for a couple of hours recently. She did it for free, which is very, very nice of her. And she's normally, I think, an expensive <laughs> lecturer, but...
1: Really I will tell you the the other Netflix book I love is called Powerful, which is on the HR model of Netflix, oh, yeah. which I've read, which I also think has been super powerful. And I'm with you. Like I read a lot of business books. I read all kinds of books that I think are not necessarily political books, but um, we'll definitely put the no rules rules in the show notes for folks That's for sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And then if folks want to get a hold of you, if folks want to get involved, if folks want to donate, how do they get a hold of you? The best
2: way to reach me, where I'm most active online, is on LinkedIn. I kind of figured out how to communicate on LinkedIn. Um, so that's where, you know, I have a Twitter account too, but it's Glenn Hurwitz, uh, Hurowitz, H U R O W I T Z. Reach out to me. I'm happy to connect there. Um, you can find my contact information on our website, myyearth.org. Hope you can get involved, sign up for our, our newsletter. We are a nonprofit organization. One of the things we're trying to do is have more individual contributors. An individual contribution, because of its flexibility, is worth like three times what a foundation donation is. So we, we certainly would welcome people who believe in what we're doing, uh, supporting it as well.
1: Well, Glenn, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's great Thank you. you, and, you.
2: and thanks for all the ways that uh, you have contributed to making my year's work a success. It's, well, it's been a game changer.
1: It's our pleasure. And we will talk again soon.
2: All right. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you. Bye.
0: And we're back. That was fascinating. I found that super interesting. Glenn has obviously played a really important role in transforming some of these industries that he was mentioning in the interview. Joe, your favorite takeaways, what sort of stuck out to you in that conversation?
1: This idea that he's focused on a long-term goal and that, you know, he's sharing that goal to drive transformation and change. And that to me is super important. And that, Sometimes these campaigns don't get to success immediately, that you're really building over time and sort of how you judge failure, right, can be very different, that it may mean that the company you're asking for the change, that they don't do it right away and that it takes a long time. And that that, though it might not happen immediately, is not maybe a short-term failure for a long-term gain. And those to me are really powerful things to think about because I think that sometimes we, we give up when in reality we just need to be holding people accountable for a longer period of time and thinking about different tactics.
0: Yeah, I've had it – it's interesting also I – and mean, we've talked about this before, right, the idea of coalition building, but thinking about it in terms of this particular way of holding folks accountable – that the sort of similar rules still apply in terms of how do you think about working across organizations, right? In the philanthropy space, in the government space, but depending on what the thing is you are trying to hold somebody accountable for, what are ways that you can bring in the private sector, right? Like what are ways you can bring in folks or connect the dots for folks who may not, sort of initially see themselves as connected to the issue, right? And thinking about who do you currently have at your table versus who you want at your table and really thinking broadly and expansively about that to get others involved. Because as you mentioned, some of this transformation takes a while and is really sort of planning for the long haul versus like that immediate short-term win.
1: Yeah. And what I'll say is I think often why accountability campaigns fail is because they aren't broad enough to bring in enough people. Right. Mm -hmm. They're just thinking about this one small subset and the broader you can make them, the more you can get different groups to engage, the more likely they are to succeed. But as you said, that coalition building takes time. So maybe what you have to be doing is approaching that issue or that goal in different ways to different groups to get that engagement. And that could take years around something.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate like his his understanding of like the persistence, right, that it would need to take because of some of the complexities of the issue, right, like some of the complexities of the space, the ever changing sort of movement and landscape we're dealing with sort of politically, economically, culturally, and how he discussed how Mighty Earth is consistently thinking about right, like different angles or different scales to work in order to achieve those goals, right? I think we all know Things are changing rapidly, right? Like we have no idea what's around the corner and and our ability to understand that change is constant, right? And that the need to adapt is crucial and important to particularly some of these long-term sort of accountability work campaigns, movements that we're working in. But keeping that sort of North Star in mind and adapting to... Figure out what's going to get you there in this new landscape, right? Of digital this and AI that and right, like COVID this and who knows what. It's not going to happen overnight, but to keep on it and keep persistent and understanding that you're going to have to adapt and change at some point in order to achieve your original goals.
1: Absolutely. And that the change we want isn't just going to happen on its own and that you're going to have to put some organizing and some coalition building and hold some very specific people accountable to make that happen and listen you could be holding your friends accountable in this process it may be that they're just not making your issue the priority and you need that kind of accountability so i like the idea that he talks about about transformation and that you're looking at the long-term goal and some of this is holding people maybe you don't like accountable or people you do like to like move this issue you care about so much up that priority ladder to really make something happen. And we've seen, you know, again, this idea, the world is changing, but how we see what our priorities are and what, you know, we want to really truly happen. We've got to make sure that we are doing the work behind it. Agreed.
0: I mean, we keep talking about this in the short term, keeping folks engaged relatively easy. There is a goal right in front of them. They can see it they know what they're doing. How do you sort of recommend to our listeners as they're thinking about some of these things that may take years, decades, right? How do you keep people motivated, engaged in these efforts that are really gonna be with us for the long
1: haul? Well, first of all, it's don't stop. I totally get that there are gonna be individuals who take a break from a movement, come back to that. That doesn't mean you don't keep communicating with them, sharing them what's going on. People may have different levels of involvement but also continue to look for moments of opportunity it may be that like hey you wanted this one big legislative push but that doesn't happen but maybe there's a comment period around an issue that you could get people to sign petitions around maybe there is an anniversary around a movement that you had and that worked well and you're getting people to remember the you know what had happened and it's a way for you to bring people together so it's th- Thinking of those moments of opportunity, planning this out, but not just like taking a complete break for an issue and saying, and of course you're not saying this, you know, hey, this isn't going to happen for years. So let's come back to it in 10 years. I think it's What are those incremental steps you can take along the way? Are there ways to hold your friends accountable or your, you know, get your coalition to change a little bit to get more people who care about this issue? Those are all great ways to do it. And it all does take time. These things don't happen overnight. And it is going to take that focus to make whatever you're trying to work on a priority. And it's not a
0: standalone, right? Like I am sure whatever the issue is, is weaved in or touches or connects to some other issue that is probably forefront at the moment, right? And and how do you think creatively about connecting those dots, making those links so that you're able to say, yes, this environmental issue is connected to this other piece. Yes, this human rights issue is connected to this other piece and really sort of educating folks and letting them know that every step we take is is getting us closer and closer.
1: And it may be using your political power of your movement to help on a different issue right, to help the people you want to be in coalition that you think, hey, wait a second, they're saying our issue is connected to them. Let's work on this issue together and then come back to it. So I think that idea of building those bridges and then figuring out what are the things that you really want to get done? What is that transformation you're looking for in the long term? You know, whether that's LGBTQ plus rights, whether that is climate change, whether that is supply chain issues, whatever it is, there are so many issues out there that I think it's really, how do you plot along to keep it moving? All right. Well, this was a fun episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you have questions or comments about accountability campaigns or transformation, drop us a note. Check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. And the information about this can be found in the show description.
0: And like always, be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. And please stay tuned for next week's episode. Until next time, this is Martín Diego García. And Joe Fold, breaking
1: down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martín Diego García, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.